This is Guerrilla Project Management with Samad Aidan. We bring you engaging and thought-provoking conversations with today's leading project management experts and emerging influencers. Welcome to this edition of Guerrilla Project Management. This is Samad Aidan. And joining us today is Dr. Marjorie Mayer, author of the book The Virtual Edge, Embracing Technology for Distributed Project Team Success. Dr. Mayer will share with us her insights on global teams, the challenges faced by small, medium, and large organizations, technique for better communication, and best practices that have worked for other global leaders. Marjorie Mayer has a PhD in leadership and organization and focuses on global operations. She has been working across cultures as a virtual leader with teams, partners, and stakeholders to focus on what needs to be accomplished in order to complete projects that deliver to expectations. Her experience comes from many years of working with global leaders to solve leadership, organizational, and communication issues. She currently teaches business and strategy and group dynamics and communication for University of San Francisco and Kaplan Universities. She also facilitates workshops in strategic planning for the American Management Association. Here we go. Marjorie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Marjorie, how did you get interested in exploring the topic of global communication and what motivated you to do the research on this topic? Well, for the last few years, I've been working with a company that has been selling software um, overseas, mostly, and they've been implementing this technology in Europe and the Middle East. So I was interested to um, find out about how other people manage distributed teams, specifically global, because that's what I was working on. I um, actually presented this to my publisher because I had a book come out 10 years ago about distributed teams and I and we talked and she said it was time to perhaps update the book so I actually asked her if she would be interested in me doing a little bit of research on global teams and she said that sounded like a really good idea and that was the beginning of my um, finding all these wonderful people who do project management Define for us what is a global project and give us some examples from your research. Well, a global project, the way I put together the requirements for people who I wanted to interview were uh, really where someone was managing a project that had resources located beyond the U.S., so perhaps around the world or at least with people who are not in the same building uh, usually in multiple countries. So I was looking for projects that really had multiple cultures involved in them because that would really add to the richness of what I was looking for. Now, as an example, I have been involved in three global projects, and I would like to share those with you. They are very different. Um, the commonality about all three of them was I've been working with this one company that produces um, the software for digital signage. So any video feed that comes through, their software actually presents it. So the first project that uh, is just about ending right now is with Germany and with Deutsche Telekom in particular, and it was a proof of concept where they are doing something which is managing screens 
in, say, a, an airport or a shopping mall or an area where there are a number of screens, and they manage them today, very few of them, from a central location. And they wanted to try this software and see if they could manage hundreds of them from one location. So the proof of concept meant that I'm here in the U.S. I'm the overall project leader. The company itself is out of Santa Cruz. The sales is in the U.K., sales for this company. The software is being developed and modified in India. And the customer is in Germany. So um, once every two weeks, I have an overseas call, which is early, early in the morning, 6 a.m. my time. It's uh, nine. It's 10 hours different in Germany. Um, I have calls in the evening with India. My project manager for software, she's also the trainer, she actually has calls with them once a week, also 6 a.m., to just go over what has been happening at the uh, proof of concept. And we are now to the point where everything has been developed. They've trained, they've trained on it. They're working with it. And on the 9th of uh, December, I believe, we're going to have our final meeting to find out what the next steps are. So that one is uh, one of the projects I've recently been on. We have another one where uh, this one's in the Middle East. It's in Qatar, which is near Saudi Arabia. And our next meeting is actually uh, a week from today. And we are, again, implementing this technology, but in a slightly different way. The technology still is being developed in India. The salesperson, again, is in the UK. But in Qatar is a reseller that is working with the Qatar National Conference Center. And they are building the center. And the reseller is also going to be the first line of support. So the team I'm working with are still distributed around the US and in the UK. But we meet with this reseller, who happens to have Indian people that work there, to manage the, all of the technology implementation in Qatar. And we are now working with them to get everything we need from their customer, which we don't ever talk to, um, and make sure that everything's been coordinated and ready to go so that probably sometime in January we'll be doing the installation. And um, our training person will go over and train the reseller who will then train the customer. So we are really close. Um, on both of those projects, by the way, um, I have never seen, I did not see the people in Germany. I have not physically met them, nor have I physically met the reseller in Qatar. The salesperson in the UK has met people, and the CEO from the company has met at least the people in Germany and our trainer has met the people in Germany. But most of the time, we have not even met these people. We have WebEx calls. Uh, we do not even use the video portion of it. So for us, it's very interesting. It has been built even without seeing one another. Wow, that's amazing. I know, I know. That's, that's why I brought it up, because when I get into my book, you'll hear how video conferencing is used or not used, depending on the project. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, the third project has been a two-year project, and it will be again in 2011. But the, the sister of the software company 
is a design firm, and they do the software part of what appears on the screen. So they actually, it's called a wrapper. There's something that goes around the screen that has a logo or it has specific information on it. So they actually focus on the, that software piece of it or that technology piece of it. Two years ago, the CEO negotiated with the RNA. Um, they are the people that run the Open, Royal and Ancient, and they have run the Open for 150 years. So last year, it was in Turnberry, Scotland, and it was the first time we actually ever had a project manager, a project leader. There was an on-the-spot project manager when they were actually there, but they hadn't had anybody who came in early and really started to look at the project and put some processes in place. So that was what my role was. So for 2009, they actually were putting all the technology in in Turnberry, Scotland. And Turnberry, Scotland was a World War I Air Force base. So the tarmac was still there, which is where all the buildings would be. But within seven days, they built a village, and the company I worked with had to put in a fiber optic network, voice over IP, 150 digital signs, two very large outdoor screens, and everything in the media center so that when the photographers and the reporters came, they could actually publish their stories. So the interesting part about this one was um, the design firm headquarters is in California. The artistic director is in Hawaii. The copywriter is in Nevada. The customer is in Scotland. The Again, the salesperson's in the UK. And then we get into where does the technology come from? So a Cisco reseller was in the US and they actually put together everything that needed to be shipped for the voice over IP technology. So they put it into one of those shipping containers, sent it to Europe, and then it had to be picked up and brought to Turnberry. So there was that element of learning about how do we get it from wherever it lands, how do we get it through customs, how do we get it on a truck. So that was a big coordination and logistics effort. Mm. We had to put people up in, um, actually it was considered a, a trailer park, if you will, uh, or a caravan park, where all the people that were working in the technology side had to stay. Three months before, three or four months before the open actually occurred, we had to have a crew in there putting fiber optic cable into the golf course, working with the greenskeeper to make sure that we did not stop his irrigation from working. Mm. Um, we had to negotiate with the BBC for the video feeds and the size of the pipe that would allow enough video to go both ways. We had to bring in electricians who were local. Um, it was a pretty sophisticated operation. We actually had to go to a vendor in London that supplied the rental of all the digital signs or the, the digital screens. So they had to ship those. Uh, when we were all on location, we had to not only have these two big trailers filled with equipment, but we had to hire a security staff 
to make sure they guarded everything so that the things didn't walk away. We had to hire something like 25 local people to come in and help install the screens and the cabling and the phones and test everything so that everything was working the, at least two days before the golfers teed off. And then once it was up and running, we had an operations center there where if there were any things that were down, phones, uh, screens, anything, that they could send people out to repair things. And then the day it was over, we started taking everything down and had to ship everything back wherever it came from. So that happened in 2009. Because I had plans and schedules and best practices, 2010 was pretty much flawless and it worked out really, really well. So those are the ones that I've actually been involved in and will probably be involved in the Open again in 2011. What is fascinating about the three projects you mentioned, Marjorie, is that although the core technology from your uh, organization is in a way uh, the same, every implementation brings in a whole new set of dimensions and challenges that it makes the technology itself seem to be uh, never really the issue. It's always the logistics and all of the risks around each uh, and every implementation. That is so true because it's, at least from my experience, because it's software, it's, it's in need of being customized. Mm -hmm. So although there are basic operations for the software, there are certain things, for example, if you have a company and you need to make whatever the software do look like it's coming from your company, there's all this customization that has to happen so it looks like it's your company and it's not somebody else's company driving the software. Right, right. It's all about branding and uh, and and uh, making sure that uh, behind the scenes um, everything looks like it's all that one, uh, it's all technology that that company brought uh, to life. Yes, yes, it has to and be totally seamless. Uh, no one should wonder who's running this software, whose is this. The other piece about it, it doesn't sit on your location. It is really software as a service, so you have to have Internet access and go to the cloud to access the software. From your research, you found some key coordination challenges, like you discussed, uh, that face project managers leading global projects. Can you share with us your key findings? Well, first of all, it's really important to figure out a comfortable time to have meetings because you're in um, multiple time zones and it's hard enough when you want to have meetings when you're three hours different, but when you're nine, 10, or 12 hours different, it becomes a real challenge. Mm -hmm. So for me, uh, I've been dealing with the UK, which is nine hours ahead. I'm on the west coast of the US. Germany is 10 hours, and the Middle East and India are 12 hours. So I really have to pay attention to what's a good time for all of us. Now, when do, you, when do you find time to sleep? <laughs> Well, they don't happen every day, so that's the good part. Mm. The, the other piece is uh, because I work with a company that has customers and I don't work for a big company that has, that's a multinational company, what happens is I pretty much allow my customer to tell me what is the best time for them. 
Mm-hmm. So, for example, my UK meetings or my Scotland meetings are usually 8 a.m. here, which is about um, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 o'clock in the afternoon UK time. Germany is very different. Germany and France actually are very different. They leave exactly at 5 o'clock. They don't get overtime, nothing. So their meetings are 6 a.m. in the morning, and they then are finished with the meeting pretty much at 4, 4.30, and they can go home. So I have to change my schedule. Uh, Meetings with India are usually at 10 o'clock at night. So I really sometimes 9.30. So I'm not in those all the time, but I really try not to have a 10 a.m. meeting and having had a 6 a.m. meeting that day or 6 a.m. the next day. So I really try not to have them together. But when you are working globally, you really have to think about the differences. Now, in my research, what I found was in large companies, and I did find some large companies that were part of my book, they would take turns being inconvenienced, but they were all in the same company. So that makes it a little bit different. And when I was on Global Projects prior to this, if I was inconvenienced this week, maybe I wasn't inconvenienced next week, but somebody in another country was. Mm -hmm. But when you work with um, different companies and customers, you really have to be much more flexible. The other challenge that um, I found was you have to start understanding what's going on in the other country. For example, there are holidays and events that are different in other countries than they are here, and we cannot assume that either they know when we have time off or we know when they have time off. So when you have to coordinate, it means you have to ask what's going on this month or next month or when will you be unavailable. For example, um, we had Ramadan last month or the month before, I think it was the month before, in the Middle East. And what I found was the people only worked from 9.30 in the morning till 2.30 in the afternoon. And of course, they don't work Fridays because Friday's already their Saturday. So we needed to know that they were having this smaller time frame. So we actually pushed back on the things we were delivering, and we didn't have any meetings during those times. On the other hand, this week... When we have a holiday, I had to alert my cohorts in Germany and in the U.K. that we're not available this week. Many people have taken vacation and that we've now scheduled the first week in December to have our next meetings. So it sounds like it's not important, but it is really important when you actually are working with teams to ask and respect the time that they may have for other things. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other piece of that was the month of August, August to the beginning of September, for six weeks, we were not able to work with the people in Germany because they take six-week vacations. So right. we had to coordinate with when they were available just to start this proof of concept. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of coordinating things I find are really challenging and also very important. You also found that global projects face a number of communication issues. Can you describe to us some of the key issues from your research and experience? Certainly. First of all, communications is a big problem in business today, period. It doesn't matter what country you're in. It doesn't matter how global you are. 
We seem to have many ways to communicate, but we're not very good at sharing important information. What I find is, I, I think, this is my own view, we, don't, we haven't learned ways to communicate the right information at the right time. We have various ways to communicate and multiple devices, but we're not really sure what we should be communicating. And that particular issue about communications gets even bigger when you start to work with global teams. So for example, um, attending meetings, sharing documents, um, communicating status, communicating action items, any of the things that keep people aware is, is really important. And here's an example. Two weeks ago, the CEO and the salesman were in Germany after we, they were actually there for a conference call that the people in the U.S. and India were involved in. The call was about 40 minutes, and then the CEO and the salesman stayed there meeting with the manager of this division. They had a discussion. I assume they made some decisions, and off they went. Up until this week, I never really heard what the result of that decision was or the discussion. And so I didn't know how that might affect the team until I actually asked what was going on. So I think for me, when I take that to the next step, I think it's human nature to assume that other people either heard what we heard or will find out in some way. And I do, don't think we're disciplined enough to write down something that occurred that perhaps only we were privy to. So for me, one of the things that I have, um, I have done is I actually have a communications plan, which I also put in my, my book. I asked the people I interviewed in my research if they used anything like this. And when I'm on my speaking engagements, I ask people this as well. So I have a communications plan that really talks about uh, who was in the meeting or who needs to be in the meeting, what is the meeting about or what is the communication about, how will I communicate it, why will I communicate it, so that I have a plan so that if anything happens, people know that there are certain people who need to be communicated with to a certain level of information and when they need to be communicated. Um, it is something I have to ask for, and it is something I have to keep asking people to respond to, but it is one thing that helps people understand when they should share information. So that's one, that's the logistics or the tools, but there's another piece of communication that I would like to bring up, which has to do with understanding country cultures, ethics, and norms. In the U.S., we tend to think we understand how to communicate or we have actually a way of communicating. A very U.S. way of communicating is we'll ask a question and we quickly answer the question. We don't spend a lot of time considering the implications of the question, um, thinking about it. We, we just usually respond. That's a very U.S. technique. But when you're Talking to people in other cultures, there are a number of, number of things that you really have to understand. For example, if English is their second language, 
many times when you ask a question, people pause and they look at your question and they try to figure out what is it you're really asking because they think maybe they don't understand your question very well. And then they put the question into their own language to figure out what is it they need to deliver. So what I found is it's almost as if I need to sensitize people to think about how this appears to someone else. And an example of this is when I do speaking, I suggest to people that they do not ask yes or no questions. You know, can you have this done by such and such a date? Because in many cultures, people will say yes because they don't want to disappoint you. This is understanding the culture and the norms. If they don't want to disappoint you, they really want to say yes, but they haven't had a chance to think about what you're asking. So what I would prefer to do is to try and ask things like, what kinds of projects are you working on? Could you share that with me? Um, how many projects are you working on and how complex are they? Um, can you tell me how this project might affect some of the projects you're on? So that you get a sense of the person, his or her workload, and they get an opportunity to share with you what's going on so you get to a common understanding. And actually one of the questions might be, here's what we need to do. Um, can you describe, please, how this fits into your schedule or something to get them to share that with you? The other thing is understanding what's important in the other culture. So I recently had a discussion with a manager who said um, he really wants to motivate his global team and one of the things he's going to do is reward them financially. And I said, that's very U.S. What is the motivation in your Indian or Italian team? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, in India, Family is the most, in India and Italy, family is the most important. And if you want to give someone a motivation or an award or reward, what you need to say is, we would give you time off to spend with family. That's the most important. So if you really want to motivate people, it's not financial. It's not a free lunch. It's really time with family. So those are all communication things that I think are really important for people to start paying attention to as they work in global teams. Uh, give us an overview of the research that was the basis for your book, The Virtual Edge, Embracing Technology for Distributed Project Team Success. Well, it, it is case study research. And uh, as I started to think about what I wanted to do, I really asked people that I knew were, who were working on global projects or people that I knew knew people who were on global projects to see if they could introduce me to people. So what I found was I had 20 project managers from around the world. Um, I found them through a research technique called the snowball technique, which means you ask somebody and they refer you to somebody and they refer you to somebody. So it really built on itself. And um, I then was able to gather enough people. I really didn't have any idea of how many. I just knew that they needed to have people in multiple locations, uh, that they were in different countries, 
and that they were working on these global projects. My The way I worked this was I would interview each person either in person or on the phone, and of course because it's global, many times it was on the phone. I would have I would be taping the interview and I would also be writing up my findings. Um, I would I had a series of questions I asked, although I allowed allowed them to tell me their stories because that's what I really wanted. When I finished, I wrote down I typed up everything that they said, sent it back to them to modify, add, and approve, because I said once they approve, that would be what would go in the book. So once I had all the interviews. I then started to analyze them, and I was looking for ways to group them, trends, commonalities, whatever I could find. Uh, once I did the analysis, I realized that I had small, medium, and large-sized companies in my mix. So I really grouped them that way in the book, and in each of those, I found out the similarities and the differences in each of those size categories and then best practices that each of them shared as well, as well as global practices that were across all sizes. What trends have you seen in researching global projects? Well, this will be general. Um, I may go into some specifics as I go on, but in general, uh, first of all, every project team used email as their main form of communication. It was universal. It was daily. It was a way to share information. Some would have much more information in their emails than others, but it was definitely the common communication. The teams that were in larger companies used coding in the subject to distinguish the projects because those people got 150 emails from within the company, and this allowed them to see which project the information was coming from. Uh, they also actually used emphasis so that people could know whether or not they were just for information or they were projects that really required some action. I also actually in that vein found that um, in some cases people would send very, very detailed pieces of information and within the information they were actually asking for some action but they denied it. So some of the project managers told me that they would have to suggest to their uh, team members that they actually put something in there about the specific action they were looking for so that the other members could understand what was uh, expected. So it was less of assuming you'll find it in my email and more of being specific about what I need from you in this particular um, subject. The other thing I found was in small and medium companies, they used video conferencing much more than in the larger companies. They also did a lot more screen sharing. So they used things like uh, uh, Citrix, uh, WebEx, uh, Flash Meeting, and uh, DimDim. And just to give you the difference, Citrix and WebEx are paid subscriptions, very familiar. You dial into a site, and then you usually have a separate phone number, or maybe the site will call you back. You can share a screen. Um, so you have that kind of communication. Flash Meeting, because I did have some educators, is a research site, but it's also a platform for educators where you, you can show yourself as a video, 
everyone who comes on, you get a little thumbnail of everybody who's in the video. They can hear and see the presenter, teacher, whoever it is, uh, has the microphone. But if somebody wants to interrupt, they can interrupt or they can get the microphone. And Dim Dim is a free service that's very similar, um, but um, I think if you use it in, if you want screen sharing, I think there's a cost. But these are ones that some of the people in the groups talked about. In the larger companies, I found they didn't use video conferencing, much to my surprise. And they said because the rooms were, they were big rooms that were set up. They were pretty cumbersome, and often you had to have somebody come and set it up for you. So they actually did um, conference calls instead, which was very surprising. Um, the other things I found that um, in larger companies, between their own locations, um, oftentimes the team would meet in the beginning of the project and meet again at the end of the project. So either they would fly the whole team somewhere here or the people here would go there. Um, everyone said that that would be the most ideal thing to do, but in small and medium-sized companies, they couldn't afford to do that. So they used video conferencing, not all the time, but many times to get to know one another. In the book, I also have a sample of um, Cisco's telepresence, which is for large companies. And it's rooms that they've set up where it looks like you're sitting in the same room. So the rooms are designed where everyone's sitting in front of a conference table and there are big screens in front of you, microphones at everybody's workstation, and you can have people sitting in a room various places around the world, and when you're in the meeting, it looks like they're sitting opposite you in the conference room. And you can either have that or you can go to one of the places and you can pay for both ends to be part of it. But I found that very large companies might use that. Smaller companies really could not use that very well. The other thing I found was, again, this is um, more small and medium-sized companies where they said that they needed to have professionals and independent people on their teams. And what I mean by that is, that because each person was responsible for a piece of the project, there was no oversight from the project manager. Everyone had to be self-disciplined. They had to be the best at what they did because there was no one else to do it. And an example is one of the projects was a project to uh, working for the FDA find out the quality of milk in the U.S. and Canada. So they had people in different places in both countries. They would inspect the reports that came out about milk every month, and they put out quarterly reports. And what the project manager told me was that she had one person on the team who was not really up to getting things done in a timely way. They kept expecting him to deliver, but he didn't. She actually had to fire him and replace him because they needed to have the best that they could. To compare this to large companies, which is not saying you don't have quality people in large companies, but if you're in a large company, often you can go down the hall or you can contact somebody within the company to help if you are not the expert in a specific area. So small and medium-sized companies do not have that luxury. And the final thing that I found was 
there are checklists and really formal ways of keeping track of things that it seemed like small and medium-sized companies used much more than larger companies. You touched upon this in earlier answers, but what tools, technical and non-technical, have you found to be the most effective in managing distributed teams on global projects? Well, the first one is something that I use, and um, I have found when I spoke at um, the PMI Global Congress that many people use there as well, and that is a project charter, a one-page project charter. And almost all small and medium-sized companies said they use these. And they are really a one-page of whatever the project is that highlights the objective of the project, the benefits of the project, the scope, and assumptions. And this is critical because every person on the team has assumptions. And part of this is to document the assumptions and be able to get to an agreement on what is actually being done. The other pieces of this are major milestones and deliverables, which again, in small and medium-sized companies, you don't need to know all of the tasks people are using, but you really need to know when things are going to be completed so that you can understand how it all fits together. In larger companies, what I found was people use detailed project plans. So they actually would follow all of the tasks that needed to be done, usually because it was an internal implementation and they, could, they, they all had this software so they could get status from one another. And in some cases, if it was working for a government project, they had to actually figure out what the costs were for all the individuals to work on these projects. The other piece that I mentioned earlier was this communications plan which alerts the people of meetings and commitments. So in my book, I actually have two samples of a communications plan. But really, it is uh, who, the who, what, when, why, and how the communications is shared. And when I look at that, I say the who could be a project team. The what is uh, action items, when on a weekly basis, the why is so that they're aware of what's going on, and the how might be on a WebEx where you're sharing the screen. The other end of that might be the who could be management. It could be the sponsor. It could be the CEO. Uh, the what would be like a dashboard, a highlight of what's going on. When? Perhaps every two weeks, once a month, depending on how long the project is. Uh, why? It's just so they have a general idea of where the project is at any place in time, and how, in most cases, it's done via a PowerPoint and usually a presentation. So those are kind of the, the things that I found from other people and that I've also put in my book. Marjorie, if our listeners want to know more about effective communication in global projects, what resources do you recommend to them? Well, first of all, I think people should learn about global business first. Um, and I think that's important because there are lots of implications about global business that most people don't know about. Uh, for example, why has the company located in a certain location? Uh, what is it about this group of people that you're working with that, that adds to your project? Um, is there something that you should know about that area that you, perhaps you don't know? So in that aspect, I, I can give you some books that I think are really important um, first of all, there's a book called Global Business Today by Charles Hill. 
and that really is specific. Gives you examples of certain companies. Um, IKEA comes to mind, and some of the things they did in different countries to actually take advantage of the culture in those countries. So I think that's a really good resource. Um, there's also a book called Globality by Harold Serkin, James Hemmerling, and Arundam Bhattacharya. I have those typed up for you, which really talks about how the world is global and what does that mean to you. Then there's another one called The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman, which is a harder read, but it really is an interesting book as it talks about how uh, the Internet has really allowed us to communicate with each other. All of these books talk about the effects of the Internet on becoming global, how to work with other countries and, and companies. So I think getting familiar with global business is really important. In addition, um, if someone wants to be a global leader, it's not just finish this project and go on to another one that's global. Uh, it's really understanding your own leadership skills. Um, both in my book um, and here I will say that Kellogg Northwestern has developed a leadership instrument that you can get online, and I believe it's free, and you can test your own leadership skills. And it's uh, www.kellogg.com. Well, I won't even tell you it here, but there is a link that you can get to, and you can test your own skills to see how you would do uh, managing a global team. So I think those are pretty important, and I think people should consider reaching out a little further. Now, if they're in a company, somebody asked me this the other day, what I'll say is you need to get to more complex, challenging projects. So at least you have to work on um, distributed projects that are in the U.S. and do a really good job of getting those completed. And then stepping up perhaps to ones that are global and maybe even volunteering to work on a project in another country, which will really give you the other side of what it's like managing a global project. Those are some wonderful, wonderful recommendations, Marjorie. Thank you for that. Uh, Marjorie, what key takeaways you would like our listeners to take forward from your research and from this interview as they embark on leading global projects? Well, first of all, I have to say that this is from an American's perspective, everything I've talked about, and it's not from somebody living in another country managing a project with U.S. people. So I just want to be able to say that because I'm sure if I was a, somebody from France or somebody from Hungary, I would have a different perspective on what it's like to manage and understand people's thinking. Nonetheless, understanding a country's culture is extremely important. Understanding how people communicate is extremely important. And here's an example. I work with India. India, Indian people speak English really well. So we will get on a Skype call and we'll start talking to them and asking them questions. And I found that it's really difficult because they have to think about what you're asking. Many times they have a team sitting in the room and the team really needs to discuss the question. So I found that a voice call on Skype is not always 
the best way to communicate. I have understood that communicating with India in a chat session is so much better because they can read what you wrote, have time to think about what does that question mean, share it with their the people on their team who are local, and be able to write back to you exactly what the answer to that question should be. So understanding how people interpret what you're saying, understanding that asking a question without the yes or no, asking a question that makes it easy for somebody to share is really understanding their culture. Um, probing into what you really need from a resource is a much better way for them to trust that you really want to know what they're doing and for them to understand and agree with what has to be delivered for whatever the project is. Um, documenting a meeting. I tend to be pretty um, dogmatic about this. I'll be in a meeting just a general meeting, and as soon as I hear action items, I start jotting them down, and I write down who I heard them from. And before the meeting is over, I will go back and say, I'd like to go over the action items. And everybody's delighted, and I'll say, I heard this. Is that right? Yes, it is. Whose responsibility is it? When will it be due? And I then send out a little follow-up. I don't write up the whole meeting, but I actually write up the action items and when the next meeting is going to occur, and I get that out pretty quickly so that people know what's going on and what was committed to so they don't walk away and forget. I also use that when we have our next meeting. So we have an agenda for the next meeting, which I send out in advance, and then um, we use the action items to make sure that we are still on track, things didn't change, and then I add to the action items as well. Um, the other things that I found from my own and from the research is really to respect other ways of doing things. The U.S. is not always the best way. We are not out there to evangelize the world. We have ways of doing things that work here, but we really need to open our minds to understanding how other people work and what's important for them. So really to respect how other things are accomplished. Becoming an active listener is so much more important when you start working around the world. People have accents. It means you have to listen a little bit harder to understand what they're saying. But there is such a respect that comes back when you restate what you heard so that people know you were listening, you heard, you understood. And finally, um, being flexible. Um, if some, for some reason the meeting changes, if for some reason somebody's not prepared, being gracious goes a very long way around the world. Marjorie, what types of projects are you working on these days and what is next for you? Well, I'm involved with, as I said, this proof of concept project in Germany. Uh, it should be completing soon, and then I'm hoping we will have a, a major implementation after that. Uh, the project in Qatar is happening as well. 
um, I, not a project, but I recently spoke at the European Organization for Quality in Izmir, Turkey, and I uh, will be speaking at the PMI EMEA Congress in Dublin in May, uh, again about global teams. Um, I have been asked to submit a, an abstract to the 55th anniversary of the uh, European Organization for Quality Conference in Budapest, which will happen in June. Um, I have um, been asked to help formulate a book on res Russian restaurants in the U.S., and I'm actually doing some research for them now. And in reality is I would love to have more global projects and hope that other companies will contact me for my assistance. And how can our listeners find out more about you and contact you? Well, I have a website, which is, I'll send that to you in this. I have email. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Skype. And um, you can read my book. Marjorie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about global projects from your research and from your own experience. I learned a lot about challenges uh, and best practices in leading global teams as well as what tools technical or non-technical are effective in managing distributed teams. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Guerrilla Project Management. You can hear more Guerrilla Project Management podcasts on iTunes and read more at guerrillaprojectmanagement.com.